Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Jenna Birch for our tech PR episode for all you founders and VCs who want to know the secret sauce. Jenna is the founder of Sisu Brand and PR, a communications consultancy serving both venture capital firms and startups. She has previously worked as the VP of Narrative and Communications at NFX, as well as the head of content and communications at Forerunner, crafting inventive marketing and PR strategies for both firms. In those roles, she's also worked with startups across sectors like consumer, enterprise, SaaS, bio, digital health, travel, crypto, fintech, e-com, and more. Prior to working in-house at VC firms, she was a longtime journalist and published author of the book called The Love Gap, which we will get into. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Jenna. Hey. Hey. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited to chat. Okay, so before we get into all of it, we like to start every show with a fun question, a bit of an icebreaker. Okay. So what is something new that you have learned in this past week? Oh, this is a good one. I learned how to make a really nice espresso shot. It's something I've been attempting to do because I am like the the queen. I call it like the gas station coffee. Like I will drink whatever just to get <laughs> into my veins. I care not at all. But I've been trying to up-level my coffee game in the morning. And so I've been like very, oh, I don't have time to do the espresso shot the right way and like make it all pretty. That's my new thing. I've learned how to make it like the nice way. Did you get a new coffee machine? Is that what inspired it or like what inspired this change? Well, I have a coffee snob as a friend in the place that we're staying this week and he knows how to make a great espresso shot. So I've been emulating and trying to learn his ways. Uh, but we do have one at home as well, like a Breville machine where I've also just been, I've been like too antsy to get it done myself, but I'm very much going to try. This is going to be my thing. Every, every year I'm like, okay, we're going to like make better coffee. So we'll see if I revert to the the quick and dirty version or like the nice espresso version. TBD. You know, I think at least for me, when it comes to the kitchen, like I feel like you just need someone to show you and then you've got it. Like yeah. I feel this way with the recipes. Like I can sometimes feel a little bit intimidated by making stuff. And yeah. as long as someone walks it through with me once, I'm like, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. I, I got it now and then I'm good. So hopefully that's what it is. It's like you just needed him to show you how to do it one time and then you're set. And now you can make it and have great coffee all the time. I'm excited. It's going to be great. Got my I love life. it. And how do you take your coffee? I have to have some kind of milk in it. Like that's very true. Like I used to try to do the black coffee thing or like the straight espresso shots. Not for me. I got to have like some kind of creamy, like foamy experience. So I got to have a good latte. That's what I really want. Good espresso shot and a good latte. I love it. And I need a little sweetener too. Oh yeah. A little vanilla. I love it. That's delicious. So good. Okay. Well, let's get into it. So I want to hear more about childhood Jenna. 
Like, we obviously know you've had this really amazing career as a journalist, as a PR exec. Like, you crush the world of, like, comms, writing, all of that. But I want to know, like, early days Jenna, before she became this writing girl, what, what were your interests? What was your life like? Family? Like, walk me through all that stuff. I grew up obsessed with sports. Like I was a I was a tomboy from such a young age. I used to literally go to school every day in elementary school preparing to play sports on at recess. Like I would be in my basketball shorts and my like, you know, big t-shirt jersey thing and I'd just be prepared to play on the playground. I loved that. I mean, I was a good student, but I like really loved sports. So I was a competitive athlete. I played basketball and softball through high school and decided like at the end of college. I just didn't want to do it. But I had so much fun with competition. I'm still like extremely competitive. But that was sort of my trait as a child was being like very quiet, ultra diligent, but also really competitive. And I love to win things. That was just a big part of my personality as a kid. I love that. I feel like sometimes with the writing thing, you can, people can get the rep of like being very behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the times there's like ghostwriters and like journalists. I mean, not always journalists, like usually they're more forward facing, but I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, especially with your role of working in venture PR, it can be a lot of like just boosting other startups and boosting other firms. So it's interesting. Like when I think of sports, I'm like, that's kind of like you're the star or like everyone's watching you on the court. That's, you know, for someone that you said you were like a little bit more quiet and shy, that's like a pretty out there performancey thing. You know, I think it's a way to be out there without having to like be out there. Like I think when you're playing a sport, it kind of melds into the background. Like anybody that's watching it, you just like don't, you don't pay attention because you kind of get engrossed in something. And I think like that was what I was engrossed in at the time was just like sports. I loved the methodical going through like the practice, the motions, like making sure that everything was perfect. It was like a place to perfect skills and I really loved that. But I also loved like the camaraderie and the team building. It's always the team captain and like always trying to get people together. Like I loved that experience as well. And so I truly think that that kind of shaped my personality for a long time. And also I gravitated towards those things. But yeah, I was ultra competitive about it. I mean, I would play sometimes a hundred games in a summer, like for softball. And, you know, it was, it was constant traveling, but it was like so much fun. I can't imagine my childhood in any other way. Wow. I didn't know this about you. I'm so impressed. I think that's amazing. And I think like you said it, so many like, you know, high school or college athletes or childhood athletes that take it seriously, like they are so much more collaborative and well-rounded and it's just such a great way to grow up. Was there one sport that you took? It sounds like maybe softball, but one sport that you took really seriously that you thought like, maybe I'll do this in college. Maybe I'll do this after, like maybe I won't do college. Was, was that thought process? It felt like basketball was more dominant in my life, but I was better at softball. I was really good at softball. So I was an all-state center fielder when I was in high school. I mean, I really, really loved that. I thought maybe I would play, but I think I got to the end of my junior year and that was like when I won all-state and I was like, you know what? I don't really have anything left to prove or do here. I think like I want to move on to the next thing. And at the same time of being a really competitive athlete, my mom was like, hyper-focused on, she always told me again and again, she was like, you're more than sports, you're more than sports, like go have other hobbies, go have other interests, like, you know, make sure that you're well-rounded, have friends like outside of sports. So when I was ready to go, like I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I really enjoyed that. And it's funny because that was the first thing 
It was the first thing anyone ever told me outside of my immediate family that I was really good at was being a writer. So I kind of took to that and thought like, I, I think I'm going to do something with this. And I had already had my sights set on being a writer of some kind by the time I was leaving high school. And I, I couldn't do both. I knew I didn't wasn't going to be a sport, athletic goddess in, in college and then also be like a tremendous writer. It just probably wasn't going to happen. I feel like I have to get engrossed in one thing and then I'll just be thinking about, we think about that all the time. So it was kind of like the time to make the transition. And I was yeah. like, I don't remember. I think it. that's a lot of people. I think a lot of people have that pivotal moment where like they are 18 and they don't know whether they're going to maybe be recruited, but also maybe just go play club and still have it be a big part of their life or if they're just going to kind of yeah. go more the like academic route. You say you knew you wanted to be a writer then. Like, did you show people your writing? Did you do write short stories yeah. or plays for fun? Like, what did that look like? Because I'll be honest, like when I think about high school for me, I'm like, oh, I did not like English class. <laughs> I don't I don't think I did literally any writing outside of regular requirements. And now I like writing a lot more like as an adult. But back then I'm like, oh, my gosh, how would you know? What did you do? So I, I don't know. I gravitated towards it. So I feel like I did a bunch of like weird things in high school. Like I wrote like 50,000 words of a novel before I decided I was going to abandon it. I entered writing competitions for fun. Like I did it on my own. I'd go find them and I'd find ways to write them. I was the editor in chief of the newspaper and I would spend all my lunch hours like not socializing in the newspaper room, like tinkering with things. So I was gravitating towards it like pretty early in those years. Like I'd say from ninth grade onward, which was really when I had a, I had a teacher in ninth grade that told me I was great at writing. And I was like, hmm, maybe this is like, there's something here and had not yet really thought about how that would transition to a career. But like, I just enjoyed the process of sort of, you know, I think I like completing something before showing it to the world and like writing it was a way to process it before I had to like show it to everyone. So it was a great way to cut your teeth, learn a lot of different things, like explore interests. So I ended up being really lucky in that way that like somebody kind of told me like, hey, you might be good at this. And I just doubled down and it ended up being kind of the perfect fit for my personality, I think, that likes to be like, really likes to be behind the scenes and perfect something and then send it out into the world. I love it. I think um, it's so helpful to listen to what other people say are your strengths. I think we don't do this enough as a society. Like so much of the like famous quotes are like, follow your passion and like listen to your gut and do what you want to do. And and there's obviously merit in that, but there's also something to be said for like, how do other people see you? Like compared to the world that they live in where they see multiple people at all times, where yeah. do you stand out? And I think that's actually like a really great piece of advice is like leaning in your circle your teachers your people to be like what do you think i'm good at like what do you, what stands out to you cuz sometimes they'll repeat things back to you that you're like huh oh, yeah okay. i think i had so many interests i wouldn't have known <laughs> like i don't think i would have known what to pursue on my own i was like oh i could maybe do that i could maybe do that but i mean i realized that i liked it and it came really natural to me and i think it's good to like figure out that out but sometimes you need a mirror into yourself 100% so like immediately obvious I love that. Okay. So then you went to Michigan and you studied yeah. like writing in English. Yeah. And then obviously you've had this like amazing career since. Like how was Michigan? Did you like it? Did you at that time know like you wanted to be more of like a journalist and like an author? Because I feel like with writing, it's yeah. so diverse. So many, I feel like English majors too don't even end up actually doing the writing thing. They just yeah. love books. So 
Well, how was that process at college and how did you decide what that next step was as a journalist? Yeah. So it was funny. I mean, I I went in very early on. I think I actually like panic listed pre-med as like my major because I was like, oh my God, I don't know. Like, should I just write for fun and like do that as like, you know, my minor and then like go in and actually do like something else as my major, especially thinking about the state of writing. It's like hard to fathom like going into writing sometimes. But my parents were like, you obviously love writing. You should go pursue that. And then I had a counselor at Michigan and she actually majored in Michigan. She majored in English. And she said, you know, she said, I've had many iterations of my career with an English degree, but I have never been unemployed. And I was like, that's good enough for me. I think it'll be okay. That's kind of how my career has sort of evolved into with this English degree. But in terms of Michigan, I started my freelance journalism career when I was 18. So I like basically jetted into Michigan. My dad was like, time to get a real job daughter. And I was like, oh my God, I I can't imagine doing anything else, but like writing, I have to find a way to like make money doing this. So I spent my entire like first summer off, like trying to figure out how to break into freelance journalism. And I promised my dad that if I didn't have something coming in by August before going into Michigan in September, that I would get a real job as he was calling it. I was like, I think I can make money writing on the internet. And he's like, I don't think that's a thing. Little did he know, you know. Times (laughs) Um, have also changed. Times have changed, but I was like, I think I can do it. And so I ended up getting my um, first, my first like true gig on like July 30th. And I had promised him by August 1st, like if I didn't have something, I would go, I would go get a real job. So I ended up doing it. And I wrote all four years through Michigan wrote for a lot of national magazines and websites. And that was like a full-fledged career by the time I left. So I was kind of weird in that I didn't have like a ton of social activities at Michigan, but it was because I was writing all the time. So I ended up developing friends in my senior year that are like lifelong friends. But those first three years, I grinded. I went to college full-time and I wrote full-time. Um, so it was a lot of work, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. I think it really put me ahead by the time I entered the job pool, the career pool. I kind of knew what I wanted to do at that time, which was really nice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard, the trade-offs of what college is supposed to be for everyone. I think it's just so unique. I too feel like the people that really grind in college, even though sometimes you feel like the social piece does sacrifice, you can come out way ahead because a lot of people aren't working so hard on their career in college. It's more just have fun, go out, take your classes. And so the fact that you're able to do that, it really can help skyrocket you. So by the time you get out, like you look like you have four years of experience or at least two or something, you know, because it was maybe part time. Yeah. I mean, it was thankfully it was full time. But I like I look back, I really had to accelerate my social part of my life. And, you know, really, once I hit 21, I'm like, okay, time to do some of the social stuff. I have to like go back. But I, I really had a strong resume by the time I left college. And I felt like that was truly such a gift. Like, and I would do that again. And it put me in a great position, I think, of just at least having tried things during college to see like what you want to do, what you like, what you don't like. Yeah. That feels really nice going into the the career, the post-college career state as well. Yeah. And it's funny, like when we've talked, like obviously, you know, pretty soon after school, you started writing a book. And to most people, that's like, huh? What? Like you're just starting with your career. But to you, it's like, no, I've actually been doing this for a little bit. Yeah. And you kind of iterated and tried things and written a bunch of articles and been a freelance journalist for years already. So it doesn't feel as early in your career. I'm so curious, like, 
what led you to want to start the book? And I know a little bit about this, obviously, because we're friends, but Jenna wrote an amazing book called The Love Gap about dating. So give me like the walkthrough of like why write a book versus just write a yeah. you know, bunch of articles. And what gave you the confidence to be like, yeah, I'm writing a book in my very early 20s. It's so funny. I think I had like blind confidence in some ways, but I also thought, you know, this is going to be relevant for a certain time in my life. And I don't know how long this time in my life is going to last. So like in your early to mid 20s, like it just kind of makes sense to explore this. Like all your peers are, you know, dating. Nobody's like really settled down and married yet. Like they're all kind of dating in, in this like really weird space with all these like interesting new social and gender dynamics that I found really fascinating. So I was sort of seeing these trends in my real life. I was also writing about it, like from an article perspective online, I would have, I would have pitched it as an article and I did actually pitch it as an article to a publication I was working with. Um, but that publication spontaneously collapsed and it was a shock to everyone. And I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands because that was about 50% of my income. This was like my primary client. I had worked with them for a really long time. It was like, you know, new media when tech was like really trying to build into the media space, which was so fascinating um, and a story for another time. But I decided with 50% of my time free, like I needed to do something else. I had kind of realized that I'd sort of dreamed to the end of my dream. Like when I started doing journalism, there wasn't anything else that like I wanted to do other than like write compelling things online. That was the best part. But I didn't really have anything else like that I hadn't accomplished in that way. Like I'd written for magazines, I'd written online. I was like, it's kind of time to do something new. I think I need to dream a new dream. And so the book came about because it was a big story the publication collapsed. I had nothing else to do with that story. So I just retracted it from the CMS and kind of used it as like the foundation for a book proposal, uh, taught myself how to write a book proposal, and then ended up sort of, you know, I tell founders this a lot that like agenting is very similar to like pitching. Agenting and pitching a book is very similar to like pitching your startup. It's a very similar process. So I ended up pitching it to agents, shopping it around, you know, getting offers, term sheets, so to speak, getting offers in, and then like kind of having a a great agent who took me on, Melissa Flashman. She was incredible and now works at Jinklo and Nesbitt in New York. But she was great and she helped me sell the book to Grand Central Publishing. So I had about a year and a half to just like work on it and write it and like explore this side of my life. And it was like a great creative outlet and also like a great testament to bringing some like a huge project from start to finish which I had kind of always done these like micro projects of like researched stories that you then very quickly published to the internet. So like the instant gratification was there all the time, but this was like a, a much larger endeavor. And I, it's not that I knew how to do it. And I had this, t- I had tons of confidence until I signed the contract. And then I cried for the first week. Cause I was like, I don't know how to write a book. And they literally said, they were literally like, congratulations, you know, you, you signed your contract. See you in six months with a, like a, first draft later. And I was like, oh my God, terrifying. I don't know what I'm doing. This is so terrifying. So then I had to teach myself how to write a book. <laughs> but you did it. And I think like that's that's the beauty of it is like life sometimes throws things at us that like we think we can handle naively and then we actually get it and we're like, wait, now we have to do it. Yeah. And that's the hard part. And it's like really doing the work and getting it done. But now you have this book that you can look back on and say, oh, wow, this is sort of the culmination of those couple years of my life. I think so often, like I think of the classic example of just consultants that make pitch decks that don't always get used. You know, you're kind of sometimes like, what do I have to show for that? You know, like, what have I done the past few years? And 
something like a book is such a like beautiful, meaningful, succinct way to like encapsulate time well spent. Yeah. It's like kind of how I think about this is random, but like young child actors, like yeah. they can like look back and like see what they were like as they were, you know, growing up and they have these like archives. You now have this like a really cool archive of like this was your perspective and your thought process on the dating world for those couple yeah. years. And that's such a beautiful thing like to grab that while you could and put yeah. it in writing and now you have it forever. And people yeah. can buy the love gap if they want on Amazon and learn all about what you did. <laughs> Anyone can do it. Yeah. And I I mean, I still get emails about it. And I think it's like connecting with people over something so precious to them, like their relationships is just, it's so like life changing and informative. Like I just, I grew so much that process. So it was a very unique process where I will never replicate that again in my life. That like hardcore, just like therapy with tons of different people, like sort of sharing their really hard one relationship experiences. So I don't know. Sometimes I go back and I'm like very nostalgic for that time because it was such a was such an education on people and social dynamics. And eventually it'll inform every other element of my career. But it was it was fascinating. I love it. I love it. So then after you wrote this book, you had a brief stint because you were deep in dating, doing like a dating product. But I want to dive into like the pivot to venture and doing writing content comms for now two very large funds back to back. And then obviously what you're doing now, which is basically being a consultant and an advisor and for founders and venture funds. So why the pivot to venture? I'm so curious like how that came to be. And specifically, I know you started with Forerunner. So what did that look like going from book author, freelance journalist to... VC content comms icon. Yeah, well, I mean, I I went out to Silicon Valley to again. I got recruited to be at the ground floor of a dating app. I went out to Silicon Valley. I was like, we're gonna pitch this startup, and I realized super quickly. Number one, like I didn't, I don't think I wanted to do dating anymore. I felt like the book was my contribution to that. But startup seemed really fun and like very much in line with my personality of like building things and like independent work, no one telling you what to do, like creating your own template. Like I, I needed that. I think I really found that startups was my thing just by all the women I met in Silicon Valley, like early on. So many women took me under their wing. We used to have this big spot that was kind of, it was called the assembly in the middle of San Francisco. And we would all sort of congregate and gather there. And I met so many incredible people that I still know to this day um, that I would just run into, like amazing women, like building things, VCs. Like it was an incredible spot. I miss it. It was in the mission. And we used to go all the time. Like I used to go three days a week and I'd meet really amazing people and you'd see your friends and you'd be building and you'd be asking them what they're doing and you'd be co-working with them. And it was just such an incredible energy. I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but I know I want to be around these people. They're just the coolest people I've ever met. So I eventually decided to not pursue the dating app anymore. And I kind of went back into my like planning phase, went back to Michigan for a while, and then ultimately decided like I was going to go into consulting and kind of shift my journalism career. I didn't want to continue to do journalism forever. I felt like there was something else out there for me. So I decided I wanted to like do the pivot into startups or venture. 
I didn't know which, but I knew I wanted to do both. So I tried consulting. So I used my contacts and then also cold pitched my services to people, you know, from a PR and content perspective. And there was really sort of this new wave of platform roles opening up in VC at the same time, especially like heads of content, which just wasn't really a thing when I started thinking about it. But I was starting to see more of these. It was it was still a pretty rare role, but like you know, places like First Round were like building like these large engines and Andreessen. And so people were really having content as a place in the venture ecosystem. So as I started working with VCs and startups, I decided like VC is kind of the best of both worlds and that you kind of get to build a brand, like a central brand for the firm, as well as building brands for like individual companies within the portfolio. So I was like, if I can do one thing and kind of like, you know, have my cake and eat it too, I should do that. So I ended up deciding to go into venture. And as I was doing the interview process with a few firms, I had always really admired Forerunner. And I thought my my particular skill set really aligned with consumer, especially to that point in my career. I was like, this just feels right. So I'm going to just like send a cold email to Kirsten Green, who's the head of Forerunner. She is like a renowned venture legend. And, you know, I didn't know that anything would come of it. Like truly, it was like, I remember asking my best friend, should I do it? And she's like, why not? And I was like, yeah, why not? Should throw it out into the throw it out into the universe and see what happens. And they happened to be thinking about sort of a head of content role at the time. They just hadn't scoped a JD. And so, you know, 12, 12, 14 days later, I think I had a job offer to join Forerunner and I jumped at it and it was such a cool experience. Wow. I didn't know you cold emailed. See, this is the thing. Like people need to hear these stories of how like you can cold email your way into things because you just never know. Because you might have sent that as an example, that email to 10 firms that you admired and you could have never guessed which one of those 10 was thinking privately about potentially a head of content role. But the odds are like one of them probably was, or at least had talked about it in the past six months. And so I think really putting yourself out there and it sounds like you're also really good at like having a plan of attack, but like being comfortable with putting yourself out there and reaching out cold can result in some incredible opportunities. I think when you're like very passionate about a company or a firm or, you know, whoever it is that you're, whatever they're doing, if you can show that passion overlap. I think it's so valuable to be able to share that with the person who's like actually building something. So it's like very it's very flattering if like you're building something and, you know, somebody reaches out and says like, I'm really admire what you're building. And like, I want to be a part of it. I think like that's so much more valuable than they go through the process of like headhunting people that may or may not even know who the firm is or like what they do. You kind of have a leg up because you already are really familiar with them. So it's never a bad idea to send the cold email. I have literally <laughs> built my career on cold emails, which I know we have the same, we have the same, same uh, philosophy and like <laughs> approach to this. It's Mastering the art of the cold email is going to be one of the best things you can do in your 20s, in my opinion. Absolutely. And even when it comes to like the PR world, I mean, so much of it is like, how do you craft a pitch that makes you sound interesting to people who probably don't know what you're doing? So you in particular are good at that. Okay. So you worked at Forerunner for a bit. Then you went over to another very well-known firm called NFX. And now you're basically going on your own. I'd love to hear like, what was the impetus for the pivot from working at these two incredible firms to then saying, hey, actually now I want to be my own boss and pick my clients and work with several firms and several startups. Walk me through like what that decision was like. Yeah. So I think like going in-house was like, it was so 
it was such a journey. It was like such a growth experience for me. But like a lot of things I think came to fruition. I think as, you know, I hit my 30s and like everything started to change a little bit. You know, my, I think family kind of came to the forefront at the same time and having that flexibility at the same time. I am sort of a born entrepreneur. Like I think some people have it, some people don't. Some people like want to be in a corporate job forever. And then some people kind of know like on some level I'm an entrepreneur. And I think I have always been an entrepreneur. Like I never wanted to join like a magazine when I was writing. I never wanted to like, you know, go in-house at a new media publication. If I'm not sort of leading my own charge, I think like I'm always a little bit unfulfilled. So I kind of felt that itch after a while that like, yes, I love building with people. I love applying the skill set and finding new ways to be inventive and nimble. But I think I operate really well in space. And I think I get really excited to sort of build inventive strategies. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my new consultancy is like really try to do PR and comms different, especially for venture and early stage where I've just been able to witness a lot of how these industries run up close. And I, you know, I want to like take the efficient, the inefficiencies out of it. And I think that like my particular skill set works really well for a lot of the smaller venture firms that I work with and even some of the bigger venture firms that I can work with and then startups as well to be able to sort of hand select startups that I think I can, you know, do really well for. That's just something that is so unique. And it's like, you can really only do that if you're like doing your own thing. So there's such value in being in-house, but I think like the entrepreneurial itch, like if you are are an entrepreneur, you just kind of know, like you're going to jet out at some point. And everybody that I know was like just waiting for the day when I was like, okay, it's time to go back to be an entrepreneur. Like you're you're never going to do this forever because you you just have the itch. And I think I think I will always have the itch. I, I don't like I feel comfortable again in a way that I haven't felt in like, you know, two and a half years. What's kind of wild is that's how you really started when you were, you know, 18 and you were freelancing and then you had your book, like you had so much freedom and mm-hmm. you were able to pick and choose your jobs and you were able to like get, you know, make money by committing to one thing that was not like meetings every day at eight. It was like, you do it. We trust you. And so that autonomy, yeah. having that from such an early age, I think that also is probably part of it. Like that's what For you're sure. just comfortable with because that's also how you started. And so I think that's something, something to think about. In terms of like what you would give as like the, your number one tip for, let's start with maybe startups. What is like, it might be something that you think most people do wrong. It might be something that you think is just ultra, ultra important. But like, do you have a number one PR tip for an early stage founder that's building their company that like knows that press is important, but doesn't know maybe where to start or any, any tips yeah. that come to mind? Yeah, especially if you're early stage and like can't afford PR, because it's one of those things where when you are the founder and it's, you know, pre-seed company or very early on, sometimes you can't afford to bring on a PR person. But like the best thing is like most journalists have their contact info in like their Twitter bio now and you can reach out to them and sort of pitch the company. So my best, my best tips kind of involve two things for early stage startups. It's number one, like get to know the journalists that cover your beat. And by get to know, I mean like read their stuff. Like, you know, go on TechCrunch if you are a digital health company and read the writers that are writing about healthcare. Or if you are, you know, an AI company, you need to go and like check out who's covering AI for CNBC, for Axios, for, you know, TechCrunch, for Business Insider. Like go through all of these different publications and figure out who's in your beat. 
And then from there, like make sure you pitch to the news cycle because the most important thing that a lot of startups do is they'll be like, I have a really interesting story. I'm going to like send an email about it. But if it's not time to like something that's happening like right now, if it doesn't feel urgent, if it doesn't feel like it connects to some of these broader cultural narratives going on or like a big event, like a big launch, it's probably not going to resonate because every internally, like all reporters and all editors are asking themselves, why now? Why should I publish this now when there's like literally like a thousand things competing for my time? So you need to make sure that the story that you pitch like has a really strong, like urgent angle. Like why now? Like they should easily be able to say like, you know what, if we don't publish this within the next week or two, it's going to, we're going to miss the boat. We need to do this now. So make sure that you're pitching to sort of the news cycles and what's happening, which means you kind of have to be plugged into culture a little bit. So don't get too far down your rabbit hole when you're building, like, you know, be a little aware of the things going around around on around you if you want to really get some strong PR. It's such good advice. I think um, that's that's like Mary's kind of the earlier conversation around cold emails. Like yeah. they have to be relevant. They have to be timely. They have to be urgent. Like you can't just send a note to send a note. I mean, you can, yeah. but you might not get the response. It's really about, like you said, having that urgency to it, I think is really smart. And it sounds like you you think early stage founders can really do it themselves if they are reading the beat and on top of it and they're crafting things that are timely, but it definitely requires like time and effort because you have to be reading the content. You have to be looking at even the news and what's going on. Yeah. What about for like, you know, venture funds? So obviously venture funds, similar to companies, they really range from being very early and small to being large, massive, unbreakable, gigantic What's your advice for some of, let's say, like earlier stage funds? We call them emerging funds. Yeah. Let's say under $100 million in AUM and maybe like one of the first few funds someone's launched. Yeah. So I think like one of the best things to do before even think about like I'm going to go out there and like, you know, really launch my fund is like really curate what are your distribution channels for communications. I think like PR is one piece of that, but like communications is such a broad universe that, you know, you can have a blog or a Substack. like you can have your Twitter, you can have LinkedIn is now a great channel for VCs. Like you have all these different mechanisms to start testing ideas. Use those first before you dive in and think like, I'm going to go out there and like do a PR blast. Because today the interesting thing is like journalists are all over these places. And a lot of times like a tweet can turn into a segment on CNBC or a story from an Axios reporter, for instance, they might reach out because of something that you're saying. So make sure that like your name is in their face and feed as much as you can. And like, especially with some of these algorithms, like you really have to become known for a topic. So like really sort of hone in on if I'm like an emerging manager, like what is it that I'm a specialist at? Like, is it business building or is it like, you know, potentially a sector that I really want to double down on and like be known for? I think the most important thing is like making sure that like you kind of show up in a certain few key areas a bunch. And then from there, like I think start like having conversations and just opening the door. The nice thing is VCs are sort of like a sort of like a bird's eye view of like the entire ecosystem and landscape. So there's a lot that VCs can speak to. So I would start having and just pitching like who you are after you've sort of like built the muscle to put your voice out there. Start pitching just like coffee chats, honestly, like with these different reporters who just want sources, want to know what you're seeing, like want experts in the space that they can potentially turn to. And like, it's never too soon to start those relationships, in my opinion. I think that some of the best people kind of start that way. And VCs really like prove that area of expertise, like put your voice out there and then start transitioning that and turning that to have 
ecosystem of reporters that you get to know so that they know what to come to you for, like for the long term. I love it. That's such good advice. I think, um, again, back to what we were saying earlier about if you don't know what your topic is or your one thing is, ask the people around you, like, what do you think I'm known for? What do you think I'm good at? Because sometimes it's obvious, like, you know, someone just invests in fintech and they've built a few fintech startups. So that's obviously their thing. But it's not always obvious, like what people want to be known for or should be known for or are known for. Um, and I say this as someone where like, I was kind of thinking I was known for one thing. And then people were telling me like, oh, I think of you as this. And I was like, huh? Oh, yeah. And then when you lean into that, that can really help because you're maybe naturally doing something that you don't even realize. Yeah. And definitely like get feedback from people all the time. Like, I mean, I think that's really important to, to test your ideas with them. But at the end of the day too, like be really proactive about what you want to be known for. Like, I think it's really important that early on you start thinking like, you know, these are the areas that I care about. And this is sort of where I see my fund or firm going for the long haul. Like, and I want to be known for these things because sometimes like if you take every opportunity and like, don't think about that, the things you'll be known for are sort of like what the market assigns to you. And so you want to be really careful about being active in the spaces that you really do want to build presence in. So if that's like, for instance, if you want to invest in climate tech, and maybe you're not even like super, like you haven't done that many investments in climate tech, but you have a lot of great opinions about it. Like even just sort of building your voice, like building your LinkedIn presence, like creating a Substack around it, like really planting your flag and then sharing your work with journalists. That's the proactive approach that I think is so important to like continue to continue to plant your flag even before maybe you have like all the investments to back it up, especially as emerging managers, because it takes a while to build your portfolio. So definitely put your voice out there, build a thesis, like share it with people. And then like, I think that'll prompt deal flow and that'll prompt like more people to come to you for that topic. And it sounds like your advice too is like, it's really never too early. You really should be thinking about these things as soon as you start, you know, like when you start your company or you start your fund, like how am I building up my voice? How am I popping up in these feeds? Like you said, how am I really being defined for that one thing? And all this stuff works in harmony so that when you do have those launches or you do have that relevant, you know, news event to pitch, you know, you kind of already have a little bit of that credibility. Is that right? It's never too soon. And I mean, early on, I think it's everybody just wants to have a lot of conversations and get to know you. Like journalists are naturally curious people. They love getting to know people. That's kind of like the interesting element of being a writer is they're also sort of like, they, they're very social. They have to talk to everyone. Journalists have that background. So having done that, it's awesome to talk to people that are working in the space that you're reporting on. Like it's just getting that opinion because you might not convert from like day one, you might not convert like a coffee chat into an opportunity, but like after you talk to them a few times and you keep like turning over interesting ideas about what you're seeing in the market, like they're going to be like, something's going to hit. So it's never too soon to build that relationship and like that trusted relationship with journalists. And I think that's important. And, you know, you can put yourself out there in that way. And then, and the other thing too, is like never, you can also get a little bit of feedback too on, well, it's always never too soon. I do think it's important to remember that when you're talking to a journalist, like that is still their job too. So like understand like the PR language around it and make sure that like, you know, you know, when you're off the record, you know, when you're on background, you know, when you're, how you're sharing the information and how it can be used because that's still their job. So while it's never too soon and you should always pitch yourself, like do some research beforehand, make sure that you know 
the terms that you're that you're engaging with them on because I think that that's really important too because I never like to take for granted that like you know journalists it's their job when they're chatting with people and we have to engage with them in that way like reminding ourselves that it's yes it's a mutually beneficial relationship but like it's still we have to engage on the right terms so that like they know what's quotable they know what's not they know what's just a chat make sure you know those things and the industry is really small, you know, so if, you know, things don't go right or someone quotes you on something that you don't want them to say, you know, that really sucks for the long term because it is a small industry and you don't want to, you know, rub a certain publication the wrong way or rub a certain reporter. I mean, I will feel like in the past couple of years, I've seen so many reporters hop from new publication to new publication and I'm like, that can carry. So, yeah, like you said, it's so important to preserve those relationships and like be very clear on your conversation with them, what is on, what is off, all that. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really important. And, you know, I'm always, I mean, we can drop my my email in the bio, but I love helping early yes. stage founders do this stuff. I think it's really important to just like get a gut check about things. Um, just know the terms that you're engaging on. So that even when you do it yourself, you know, like, okay, I'm doing this on the right terms. I know how my information is going to be used. Like journalists are ethical creatures in that way. Um, but we got to engage with them on the right terms. That's like always the the hard part is that if you don't know the language, like you might, you might get a little confused. So I love helping people about making sure that they know the terms and the rules of engagement because it's a, it's an industry I've been on both sides of. So I definitely understand. Well, I can be a personal testimonial and say that you've certainly helped me tremendously. We usually put this at the end, but let's just do this part now. Like where can people learn more about like the consulting work that you're doing now? And like if they do want to reach you, where do you recommend they go? Is it just the email and the show notes? Do you have a website? Like what do you recommend people do? Twitter DM. Twitter DM is the best. Um, I love DMs. They're great. Or like, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn too. That's really easy. I will have a website soon. We're kind of in stealth mode as we we build things up. But yes, I think like social is always my preferred go-to is like find me on social. Perfect. And target customer. Who's like your target? Like if someone's listening right now, who do you want to reach out? Yeah, I love emerging managers. I love working with emerging managers and I love working with early stage startups, probably series seed and Pre-seed, seed, and A are kind of like the sweet spot that I love. I still do some B, C, and a little bit later stage too, but I love launching things. It's kind of like the most fun for me. So I, I love that ground floor. We're building this from scratch. We're like setting out the infrastructure of sort of your narrative and business for the long haul. That is the most fun for me. So I love it. Well, okay. Well, let's let's do our final question. Okay. I feel like I could keep asking you all these PR questions forever. And hopefully if people have more, they'll reach out. But if you could give one piece of advice to every 20-something, regardless if they're in business or not, what is that one piece of advice you would give them? Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting because we talked a lot about like getting feedback from other people. And I think that that's really important too. But I also think it's important to filter out the opinions, I think the emotional opinions of other people and what they want to see happen with your life. I think the most important thing is that you feel excited about what you're doing because there's so many people, especially if you're an entrepreneur, which I know you have a lot of entrepreneurs in your audience, so many people that just like won't understand what you're doing. And I think like that's the hardest thing to deal with, especially early on as you're building something new, it's like, there's so many people that are going to be like, why are you doing that? Like you have this nice stable job or, you know, you went to school for this thing. It's like, there's so many opportunities to just, you know, I think get into a system and just be successful on paper. But like, if you have that itch, it's like really hard to listen to. And I learned this a lot with dating is that people were so 
so deeply influenced by like what other people had to say about their lives rather than like actually making decisions that like, you know, sat well with them and were like really important and impactful like on their lives. And so they would end up in jobs or relationships that they just, they weren't happy with because other people like told them to do it. So I think there's a process. It's get feedback from everybody and then like filter that feedback internally. Make sure that like the decisions that you make feel right to you because I was terrified that like, for instance, I was not going to make any money writing, but I was like, at some point I'm going to learn how to do this. Like at some point, if I follow my passion and I'm really good at it, I'm going to find a way to do, to make a decent living doing this and, and being, you know, a writer. But I ended up evolving that into being a communicator. And I think that came with time. But if I would have ended up, you know, pursuing the pre-med that I wrote down on my application, I would be so miserable. I don't even like blood. Like I hate the sign of I don't see you blood at all. I know your sister's a doctor, but I'm just like, I can't, I would have not survived in that field. <laughs> I had someone a couple of days ago was telling me about some unfortunate like health condition and situation now. And I was getting really nauseous. I was like, I need to sit down. Like, I can't hear yeah. you talk about this. It, it's like a lot. It's, it's, an it's a lot. Feeling. I yeah. think what you're saying is really spot on the advice. And I think, you know, it takes time in your twenties to build that confidence muscle and that self-esteem muscle to filter. Yeah. Like you're saying, I think that's what's so hard is like so much of your twenties is about God, am I confident in myself? Do I really even know? Or is this person maybe know more than me, is smarter than me? And so, you know, I think it just, like you said, it takes a while to build up that muscle, but it's so important in your 20s to practice filtering out what other people say and ultimately do what works for you. Dating, business, everything. And you're going to be influenced by other people and you're going to make decisions where you're like, oh, like I wouldn't do that today. That's part of your journey and process and you're going to get better and better at it. I think like you learning to take in feedback, listen to the people that you know and trust, and then also like make a decision like on your own two feet, like that you can stand by is like not, it's not a one and done. And it's certainly not a process where you're going to know how to do that from day one, because I don't, I don't think I did. But the few times that I've like, really stood my ground, like thinking back to, you know, telling my dad I could make money writing on the internet and figuring out how to do that. It's like, it sends you on like a new, I think a new self-discovery journey and like a new path in your career for the most part. If like, or, you know, new path in your life, relationships, you know, moving to a new city. If like you really stand your ground and like you feel strongly about it. I just, I don't think you'll regret it. There's just usually no regrets involved in that. Especially if it's something that you give yourself a real shot at. Well, thanks, Jenna, for being here. It was so fun to chat. And I appreciate you sharing all your words of wisdom as someone who's been in this industry for a bit. And hopefully lots of founders and VCs will take your advice. And then also, you know, if they're looking for some support too, they can send you a note. Yeah, of course. And it's been such a pleasure. I love chatting with you as always. Thanks, girl. Okay, talk soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.